I, I say this all the time, but if you were walking down Broadway in 1861, like one in every four people you're meeting was born in Ireland. So it's a colossal Irish city, New York. And welcome to the Irish at War. I'm your host David Cummins. Today we're going to be talking about the Irish involvement in the American Civil War with Damien Shields. But first I just want to say a few quick things. I want to say a major thank you to all of you who supported, follow, like, retweet all my posts on the Irish at War Twitter page, Instagram and the Irish at War website. Truly it means the world to me that you guys and girls really enjoy my posts and share them about the world. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. I'm also setting up a Patreon page for this podcast where you can support and become a patron for as little as three euro, which is probably not even the price of a decent coffee in most coffee shops. So if you were to meet me in a pub, on a train, in a cafe, and you wanted to talk history with me, would you pay the price of coffee or a cup of tea and sit down and have a chat with me? But I know money is tight right now for everybody. It is for me, especially with this global pandemic and Ireland on lockdown. So don't feel obliged to, but if you would like to, that would be most generous. And I would be so appreciative of that. And finally, with this global pandemic, with Ireland on lockdown, please stay safe, keep washing your hands, stay isolated and follow all the government's recommendations. And together we can beat this thing. And hopefully it'll be over by Easter Sunday and we'll all be able to have a major party. But enough of that. Let's get to the interview. I had a great time talking to Damien Shields. So I hope that you enjoy the interview as much as I did interviewing him. Damien Shields, uh, just introduce yourself and talk about your specialty. Okay, so I'm a historian and archaeologist and The main area that I'm working on at the moment is the Irish and the American Civil War, specifically looking at the correspondence of Union Irishmen who served between 1861 and 1865 and analysing those letters to to kind of find out what we can tell about Irish service based on them. Uh, And I suppose the main area where I put a lot of this work out over the last decade or so has been the the Irish and the American Civil War website at irishamericancivilwar.com. And, and so what drew you to the Irish and the American Civil War specifically? That's an interesting question because I, I spent most of my career working in military aspects um, of either history or archaeology. So battlefield archaeology, um, social military history, things like that. But back uh, in the early 2000s, I was one of the curatorial team who put together the Soldiers in Chiefs exhibition in the National Museum of oh, Ireland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's still there um, mm. in Collins Barracks. You can go and see it. And in that, we, we did different galleries that were based on different periods um, in the Irish military experience in Ireland and abroad. And one of the galleries was the American Gallery, which I spent a lot of time working on. And I always had a lot of interest in the American Civil War generally. But what I was doing, detailed work on it, what became quite staggeringly apparent was the sheer scale of service of Irish people 
mm. in the conflict. And I was immediately thinking when I was doing that exhibition um, with, with um, Lar and Siobhan and Brenda, my colleagues there, that it's really something that hasn't got much attention in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of fed, it, it fed on from that. Um, it was one Sunday, I think I didn't really have very much to do. And I said, oh, I must check out this blogging thing back in 2010. And I said, oh, I, I'll maybe start telling a few stories from the Irish and American Civil War. And that, that's a decade ago. Um, and it's effectively taken over my life since then. Along with, along with a, a never-ending and largely failed campaign to try and get more attention um, for it in Ireland, must be said, for the for the contribution. But that that was the main that was the main reason. It, it was to to kind of tell Irish people this scale of service, which is comparable to the First World War, but there's a huge disparity in how we we look at both of them, both from this pr- perspective of professional historians and the general society at large. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, yes, especially. Only recently, with the centenary, First World War has only really become popular again. But like you said, the American Civil War, that's still barely well known. Actual fact, I was watching on YouTube there yesterday, a little clip from Gangs of New York. And it's that famous one that everybody kind of has the idea of, you know, getting off the boat yeah. at the docks, uh, basically signing up straight into the Union Army and away they went to fight. So... That's what everybody says, and that's always repeated. You see it online a lot. You know, they basically got straight on, and there's songs about it. I think it's Paddy's Lament or Paddy's Lamentation. So let's put that to bed. Did that actually happen or not? Right. So and I, I often, it'd be one of the most asked questions I get, actually, whenever I talk oh, right. is, is about, about that, that scene in, in Gangs New York. So that, as they describe it, never occurred, right? So right. What, what that perpetuates is this idea of these clueless immigrants hopping off the boat, they barely know where they are, don't know what's going on, and a rifle is put in their hand, and then they're sent down south to go and die, right? And that's kind of, that, that, that has entered popular conception of what was happening with the, with the Civil War, particularly with the idea that the Northern armies were filling up with these kind of mercenary soldiers. So a lot of guys did leave Ireland um, during the, the years of the American Civil War and enter service. And some of them were duped into entering the service. Some guys got off the boat there and they were taken and they got drunk and they woke up and they were enlisted in the army. It has to be said that in the majority of cases where that seems to have occurred, the person who does that to them is another member of the Irish community who's duping them. Right. right. But it's been completely overblown because the actual story is Irish guys leaving Ireland with the express intent of joining the American military. In the later war years, 1863, 1864, 1865, when recruitment had dropped off because everyone then knew what it meant to, to be in the army, your chances of survival and everything, they, they started to offer major amounts of money, more money than these guys could earn in, in, in a few years. And it gives guys, if you're in the west of Ireland or down in Munster, an opportunity to say, if I go now and I enlist for the bounties that I can get now, I can bring my family over straight away. Whereas sometimes they might have had to work for years over in America to bring their families over. This was giving them a one-off payment that made a huge difference. And so you see Irish immigration, which had dropped off at the start of the war, begins to increase again um, in the later war years. And I come across it consistently, guys who are specifically leaving Ireland to join the military. And, And so that's the actual story. So while... There's a slight element of truth to it, and I've come across many men who were duped into joining the service. Far more of them didn't do that. Um, 
that they, they went knowing exactly what they were getting into. I, I worked on one man just in the last couple of days I was working on him. He was from Drogheda, and he had first emigrated to Canada, and his mother was living on the parish, as they'd said in Drogheda. So she was, she was reliant on the poor relief of the parish. She was a pauper. And he was just over the border in Canada when they started offer, offering big money in Vermont um, to enlist. And he crosses the border specifically. He enlists in August of 1863, gets a fortune of money. His mother lands in Canada in December 1863 because the money he's been paid to become a substitute is sent direct to Ireland for her to come across. And she, she never sees him again. He, he is killed in the Overland campaign in early 1864 at a place called Spotsylvania. But he, he enlists specifically to get his mother out of pauperism in Drogheda to get her to America. That's the real story of those guys. So, yeah, it's... Of course, I mean, that's one element of the story. Most guys are enlisting earlier, volunteers, 1861, A62, and are already living in the United States. The, mm. the vast bulk of Irish who serve in the war had been living in America before it started. So, I mean, that's that's the, the major element of it, I suppose. Yeah, and I was just going to lead on to that question then. Uh, if the vast majority, or rather, if a large number of them came in the latter end of the war, 1863, 64, what about the Irish who were already there? Why did they sign up and fight? Like, was it out of sense of you know duty or patriotism? Was it just a paycheck? Why are they? What did they see it as as just three square meals uh, and money, or was it something bigger than that? Yeah, well, I suppose uh, it, I suppose to give some context to it as well, um, ju- just to talk about the, the, the sheer numbers of Irish who were there before the war starts. I, I say this all the time, but if you were walking down Broadway in 1861 like one in every four people you're meeting was born in ireland so it's a colossal irish city new york so we have to think of it in those terms like there's there's 1.6 million irish born people living in the united states when the american civil war breaks out and the irish american communities are much bigger than this um and these, these, these are other people who are often kind of left out of this story so the irish did a lot of what's called step migration so people would have gone, even before the famine, they might have gone to Scotland or England or Wales or to Canada initially. And they lived there for 5, 10, 15 years. They have a family there and then they move to America. These people all have an Irish identity, um, but a lot of Canadian-born, English-born, Scottish-born, Welsh-born soldiers are Irish-Americans, right? So you have all these, and of course there's a lot of American-born Irish-Americans. So you have this massive of Irish-American communities, and these Irish-American communities are overwhelmingly in the northern United States. Um, So most Irish immigrants come from a rural background, but when they go to America, they're overwhelmingly drawn to urban, industrialized locations because Mm -hmm. that's where you can get uh, low-skilled employment. Most of these people don't have a huge amount of skills um, from a workplace perspective, and so they go to these big industrial cities where they can work in things like factories and as laborers. Um, and so they're drawn overwhelmingly to cities that stay in the north of America because that's where most of the big industrialized cities are. And they're very cohesive as a group. They have had to put up with an awful lot of discrimination against them, particularly in the 1850s, particularly after the big waves of famine immigration, where there's um, 
things like the Know Nothing Party are operating, um, people who don't like Catholics, people who don't like immigrants. Interestingly, and it's probably something we'll talk about later, a lot of people who are very pro-abolition, pro the abolition of slavery, also really don't like Irish Catholics, a, a, because a lot of abolition is driven from a religious perspective. Um, but the Irish Americans are incredibly cohesive as a result of this. They, they really stick together as a community, right? Uh, and so, I mean, that's one of the big dynamics of particularly Northern Irish service in the Union military before it starts. And so the war breaks out, the South Carolina secedes in 1860. And there's an interesting element um, in terms of particularly the Irish New York story. And the Irish story in New York is the biggest story of the Irish and the American Civil War because of the overwhelmingly massive Irish population there. Um, and it leads to a recession, right? So New York is a city that relies an awful lot on trade with southern states, things like cotton and everything moving through the place. And if you're at the lower echelons of your working life and a, a recession hits, you're the ones who get impacted. So there's a recession hits New York in late 1860, and a lot of Irish guys are losing their jobs earlier on before the war even starts. So the war breaks out in 61, and you have a mix as a result. You have these two levels of guys. And it, we can never look in. I mean, it's worth saying, you can never look. There's no window into these guys' souls to see why they all enlist. And it's very rarely, I'm just doing it for A, B, yeah, C, or D. Yeah. It's, a, it's a little bit from every pot, you know, and it's different for every individual. But the two ones that are driving most Irish guys in in 1861 and 1862 are economics. So it's trying to support their families. Even early volunteers are doing this. And it's patriotism for the United States of America. I, I'm talking specifically now about the North here. The Irish are... are very pro the preservation of the union. They're very pro the American constitution. They see the United States as a shining light in the world. It's a republic. It's completely different to what they've left behind in Ireland, where mm. landlords are running the show and they don't have any possibility of achieving upward mobility. They see that opportunity in the United States and the secession of the southern states is putting that at risk. And so that's a huge motivator. Those two are by far the biggest. Um, from a Southern perspective, then, you have very strong enlistment among the Irish community in the South as well. It's just significantly lower because the population is lower. But, you know, things like defending their home state is seen as a big one um, there. And, and they would have also drawn parallels. They would have seen it in the South with Ireland. They would have seen that what Britain was doing to Ireland, they would argue, was very similar to what the larger United States was trying to do to the nascent Southern Confederacy. So there are a lot. I mean, there's other things that get thrown in the mix, obviously. There's a lot of guys in lists out looking at the usual, the, the same as we see in Wars at First World War, looking for a bit of adventure. And a lot of Irish guys do this. A lot of them do it because they see conflict as bringing almost a redemptive quality. So if you kind of led a, a life that you mightn't be terribly proud of. You may not have, you know, treated your wife very well. You may have had a drinking problem. You have guys who enter the military and they, they see it as a potential for it to be the making of them, that right. it will allow them to be, become more manly, if you like, looking after people. What's that saying? Battle is the equaliser of men or something? Yeah, yeah. I, like, it's something I've, I've come... It's something before I started looking an awful lot at the letters that I didn't... 
didn't think an awful lot about, but the Irish are doing that. You see, a lot of the a lot of the working class, the problems that are riddling working class urban life, particularly in the nineteenth century, are fairly horrific. It's something you see when you look in detail. Like there's you have major economic problems. Mm-hmm. A lot of these people are dying younger than other sections of society. They're um, encountering social problems more often. A lot of people, particularly immigrants from Europe, have an identity that's linked with alcohol consumption. So, for example, if you're working six days a week, Sunday is your day of rest. It's a day when you use alcohol to escape mm-hmm. your life. And you see this an awful lot in Irish communities, the, the problems of drink um, in, in the Civil War period. And so some of those guys are seeking a way to try and break the cycle for themselves. Some young men are enlisting because their fathers are alcoholics and may have deserted the family and they're now the economic breadwinner and have to go off and do it. So you you just have this mass range of different reasons. I mean, one that gets a lot of airplay is the, the Fenian aspect, right? So that the idea that by enlisting, you're going to be helping Ireland out, that you're you're getting experience to come back and fight for Ireland. And actually, it's probably the one that's got the most attention. And some men did do that. Some did do it. I would be very strongly of the opinion that it's massively overplayed as a reason why you guys join. Aside altogether from the fact that we can look on a few years and see that only a few hundred of them ever did bother to come back. But they, they just don't follow through on that. They're all very pro Ireland and they want Ireland to do well and everything but their motivation is to get their family from Ireland to America where they want to make their lives where they have an Irish identity a very strong Irish identity but it's it's rarely linked to them saying oh I'm going to put my life on the line for Irish freedom to America they, they saw the preservation of things like the United States if you were if you were particularly a Fenian um, a lot of them saw the preservation of the United States as vital because the United States was seen as the biggest counterpoint to Britain they were Britain's biggest enemy, so that was one of the major ways. But um, so some men did do that, particularly in the kind of ethnic Irish units. But um, it is it is a small number relative to the, the the numbers who actually fight in the war. Like anything, it's never just A or B. It's always A, B, C, and D. A little bit of that. And just for people who don't know, can you give us like the rough numbers of Irishmen who fought in the American Civil War? on both the Union, yeah. uh, the Confederates, the Navy, the Army, etc. Yeah, okay, so so in general totals, right, and this is the, this shows you the, the huge disparity between North and South, around about 180,000 Irish-born men fight for the North, right? That's Irish-born. That's wow. not what I would classify as Irish-American, right? So, yeah. so uh, uh, then around 20,000 Irish-born men fight for the South, the the, the strongest numbers on that are by Professor David Gleeson, who's the main historian of the Irish and the Confederacy, and like he puts forward a very convincing argument that they're the figures, right, um, for the South. So you have about 200,000 Irish born in total, but as I was mentioning earlier, you have this whole other class of people who are English-born, American-born, Canadian-born, Scottish-born, who are Irish-American. And like we can, we can, we can show this from their letters from who they are hanging out, who they're marrying and everything, that they see themselves um, as having a, a hugely strong Irish identity. So when you add those people in, if, you, if you'd like to look at it from the perspective of what Irish people had children who fought in the war, 250,000 are fighting for the North, 
who would have identified in some way as Irish American. So that's, if you like, 250,000 Irish mothers have sons who fight for the North in the American Civil War. Uh, so absolutely gigantic numbers. And they're, they're spread across. So if you're looking at the North, overwhelmingly, the, the biggest number is New York, mm-hmm. New York State. Um, following on after that, then, um, with about half as many as Pennsylvania. Um, Pennsylvania would be next. And then, then you're looking at places like Massachusetts, um, and then down kind of the Midwest states, um, places like Illinois are, are following up on that. And so they're the kind of big numbers for the North, where most guys um, are fighting as volunteers. So they enlist in this volunteer rush in 1861 or in the later war years, they become substitutes mainly. These guys who, the, the term substitute is so if you got drafted, the draft comes in. But most guys who got drafted never served in the war, actually. Um, it's, it's another misconception of it. That very few of them are ever held to service. But you could pay for a guy to take your place, to be your substitute. Right. And a lot of Irish enlist that way for financial reasons. But in terms of then where they're split, so the volunteer are the main one. But as I was mentioning earlier, like the, U- the Union Regular Army, when the war starts, the, the United States Regular Army is a bit like the British Army in that it's not seen as a kind of a desirable profession. Right? Okay. So if you're in any way doing okay with life it's not something that you you join and so the pre-war american regular army is got a lot of immigrants in it and the result of that is that when when the war starts when the confederates fire on the union garrison in fort sumter there's more irish born soldiers in that garrison than there are american born soldiers and the, the first two guys to die in the war die when it's actually an accidental death. They had surrendered and they were being allowed to fire a 100-gun salute before the Confederates took them off the fort and one of their guns exploded. with a problem in the breach and it blew up. And two guys died of that. And one of them is a guy called Daniel Hock, who was a farmer originally from Tipperary. And another is a guy called Edward Galway, who was from Skibbereen. And they're the first two guys to die in the conflict. So, And the Irish maintain this presence in the regular army, in the professional army throughout the war, um, and indeed onwards onto things like the Western Plains and stuff, they maintain that. So um, about 20% of everybody who's enlisting in the regulars during the Civil War are are still Irish-born. There are about 40% of the Union regulars before the war starts. One in every five Union sailors is Irish-born as well. Again, this isn't Irish-American. This yeah. is people who identify as just Irish-born. So nearly all the kind of professional elements have an awful lot of Irish in it. In the, in the South, then, I mean, it's a similar story. Like, if you're looking for the, the state that has the most Irish who serve out of it, it's Louisiana, because New Orleans is the major city down there, and so the Irish are concentrated in New Orleans. And so they, they're serving there. But you have a lot of guys then out of places like Charleston, Savannah, other kind of urban locations uh, up in Tennessee, there's a good few Irish guys as well serving. So, like, it, it, it is that kind of mainly urban thing. And then wh- wherever the biggest Irish urban concentration is, is where the biggest number of Irish are going to serve from. The Louisiana Sixth, the Tigers. Mm. Those yeah, are... they, they, they had the highest Irish representation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if... Just on the unit thing, if, I, if, if you want me to go into some of the, the unit stuff... Yeah, I was going to ask, um, like most people would know about the Irish Brigade and not all Irish, obviously, given the numbers especially, did fight in the Irish Brigade. So I was just wondering if you, if, yeah, if you could talk about kind of the ethnic groups that uh, they, they fought in. Yeah, okay. Well, I suppose if we start with the North again, then 
the first thing, and it's it's something that I'm always beating the drum about, is because we do tend to, and I think it's one of the reasons that we have a, an issue maybe with how we perceive the scale of service is because of the Irish Brigade, which is the famous unit in Northern service. And I think we kind of tend in our minds to classify, oh, well, you know, there was an Irish Brigade in the service of France, the Wild Geese, and there was an Irish Brigade in America in the Civil War. And like, we're thinking, oh, these are all comparable, of course, but they're not in any way comparable on a, on a scale level. So the vast bulk of Irish guys who fight both in the North and the South do not fight in a in, a, in an organisation that has an ethnic Irish identity, right? So they're fighting in normal units. Like there's a lot of Irish, I think it's about a quarter of the men in the, in the regiment known as the Harvard Regiment, the 20th Massachusetts Infantry, which was called the Harvard Regiment because it had an awful lot of very posh guys who were from Harvard in it. About about a quarter, one in four of those guys are in the twenties. Massachusetts are Irish, you know. So it's not; it doesn't have an Irish identity. A quarter of it's Irish. So yeah. a lot of that's going on. But I mean, even at the time, the Irish Brigade was the unit. Everybody looked to it, both from the Irish community and from outside it, right? And I suppose it's it's worth just doing a bit on on the numbers, like so the the brigade formations are are a number of regiments together. So these regiments went into the field with about anything between about six hundred or a thousand men. It's what they started out with. They they get reduced very quickly. But so in the north, there are two brigade level formations that go to war, and the, the famous one is the Irish Brigade, which starts out with three of these regiments, three New York regiments: the sixty third, the sixty ninth, and the eighty eighth New York. And they they're later a, a Massachusetts and Pennsylvania regiment are added to them, and they're they're the most famous, and they fight through the war, and everybody looks at them both then and now as the, the mainstay. Th- there is another one, the only other brigade level, so that size where you're talking about 3,000 plus men going into the field at once was Corcoran's Irish Legion, which was all New York units from New York City and Buffalo. A lot of Fenians in that, in that formation as well. So they're, they're the two, and I, I think we're going to be talking a bit in more detail about the kind of ins and outs of those units later, but they're the kind of two biggest. But then across the north, you have an awful lot of of ethnic units as well. But so uh, other ones in New York, the 37th New York Irish Rifles, the 69th New York State Militia, which was a pre-war militia unit and fights at Bull Run, which is very Irish orientated as well, uh, are there at the very start of the war. And all across different states. So in Pennsylvania, the 69th Pennsylvania, you have the 23rd Illinois Infantry, the 90th Illinois Infantry, all of these, like they're going around with appellations like Chicago's Irish Legion, and they're calling themselves the Irish Brigade, the 10th Ohio Infantry, a lot of them, and a lot of them are carrying green flags into battle along with their, with their, um, with their American flag. So, so those, those ones have distinct Irish identities, and there's lots around the north. In the south, because the numbers are smaller, what you have is a lot of company level um, Irish formations. So, okay. like, you know, these, these are 60, 80, 100 guys at the start of the war who would often have their own little green flag, but they rarely have enough in terms of numbers to form an ethnic regiment. And 6 Louisiana is well known because 6 Louisiana has the highest level of Irish, but mm-hmm. they're spread at like, you know, the 10th Louisiana is a lot of Irish as well. The only regiment that carries a green flag in in its entirety is the 10th Tennessee Infantry, commanded by a, a guy with Scots-Irish ancestry, um, a politician out of out of Nashville called McGavock. Uh, they carry a green flag in, and they have a high Irish representation in them as well. But most of them are, are company-level units. So it's a significantly higher kind of 
ethnic Irish identity on the north than there is on the south, purely because of force and numbers. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense that more of them joined and yeah are in the Union Army because there's more people up there. And then you you touched there on Michael Corcoran and the, the Fenian aspect of it. So, and then there's Thomas Francis Marr as well. Let's talk about yeah. him first with the Irish Brigade. Yeah, so so Marr, um, I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners aren't going to need much of an introduction to, yeah. to him, but he was uh, from Waterford, from a well-to-do family in Waterford, and had become involved in the Young Ireland movement in the 1840s and was a leader in the Young Ireland movement who were advocating that physical force was a valid way of dealing with the presence of the British military. And in 1848, a year when there's revolutions across Europe, actually, and a lot of people who end up fighting in the American Civil War, Germans, Polish, people like this, are involved in 1848 revolutionary periods. Maher is one of the men in, involved in that Young Irelander rebellion, which obviously is, is effectively an abortive rebellion. It doesn't really work out. And he's put on trial, but his fame goes through the roof all through this period. He gets sent to Tasmania, and from there he escapes to America and lands as this hero of the Irish emigrants. So a lot of people who were famine emigrants in the 1840s and everything. Mar is called Mar of the Sword because of his famous sword speech, and he's an incredible orator. I often think we have to think back to these, you know, when people are looking for entertainment and stuff. If you were around at the weekend and, you know, you're looking for, for something to do after your long, hard week, people went to things like to see famous orators talk. It was the equivalent of going to the cinema or something. And Mar was just brilliant at this. He, he would electrify crowds. And so he's going around a lot um, in the 1850s of America, going around giving talks everywhere, really like geeing up the base, as they'd say. And when the war breaks out, the 69 New York State Militia, who I was just mentioning a minute ago, are on the militia roster in New York, and they go out for 90 days service to fight at Bull Run. And Thomas Francis Marr wants a piece of the action. And so he raises his own Zouave company, a company K of the 69. So the Zouaves were, um, it was a craze that had kind of come across from France, North Africa, into America in the 1850s, dressing up in very brightly coloured uniforms and doing this whole kind of amazing stuff with your physique and your body and everything. And anyway, so Mar forms this company and they attach themselves to the 69 New York State Militia and he's a captain. And so he serves there and gets his first military experience at the first Battle of Bull Run. And they come back and they decide, okay, let's form an Irish brigade. Mar is, is at the heart of that and he, he wants to form, form the brigade to have this major Irish representation going into the service. They originally want a guy called General Shields, leading Irish general, to be the, the commander of the brigade. But Mar was a good self-promoter as well, and he definitely wasn't a shrinking violet. He steps into the breach. Shields doesn't want the job because he's looking for a higher command. Uh, Mar becomes the de facto leader. And in late 1861, the brigade forms and they go off and they start their campaign. They start their, their, their road to, to history, if you like. Mar actually leaves the brigade in 1863. He doesn't serve with it through the war. He has issues where he offers his resignation because the Irish brigade aren't allowed home to recruit. And he spends a bit of time back and forth over to the Western theatre, kind of doing administrative roles and everything, but never kind of gets the the Irish Brigade is the great moment of his life. Uh, he, he eventually, after the war, became the acting governor of Montana and uh, died there when 
he some people say he was murdered, but he, he, he fell off the back of a steamer and drowned in the river in the, in the late eighteen sixties. But he's a he's a flawed character. You know, he's often kind of he's almost hagiographical. A lot of what's written about Mar, absolutely electric personality. Men would follow him. He had a serious drinking problem that seems to have got worse as the war went on. Something that you come across a lot of written about in the correspondence as well. I think actually personally that there needs to be a bit of work done on. I think the early battles of the war have a major impact on his his psyche. I think he, he's got post-traumatic stress, if you like. And I, I think that it increases as 1862 wears on. But uh, anyway, that's a, that's another story. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting because, yeah, PTSD is obviously never talked about. It's just, you know, just drink more or get on with it. Like, you know, now yeah. what to do about it. And I suppose Mar is kind of the poster child of the Irish Brigade and the Irish involvement. But kind of the unsung hero is Michael Corcoran and his Irish Legion, because he's he's there beforehand. So, so yeah, Corcoran, I mean, Cor- and Corcoran has never had a biography, for example, written about him. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's one of the great areas. People think that the American Civil War Irish are written about all the time. There's a whole load of kind of gaping holes in, in, in work that needs to be done. Corcoran comes from humbler origins. He was from Sligo. And he, his kind of career starts out, he joins in Ireland a unit called the Revenue Police, whose job was to go around and find illicit pot stills and because they weren't paying their, their revenue and, and to shut them down. And he's stationed up in Creasley and Donegal with them, which Donegal is like the hotbed of uh, illegal alcohol production <laughs> in this period. Right. And um, he begins to get increasing sympathy with this big, if you like, agrarian movements throughout a lot of Ireland at this period with disaffected locals who were attempting to try and change the, the way land ownership is, is in operation in a lot of these places. And he falls in with them, who were effectively revolutionaries in, the, in their own way. And as it, suspicion increases upon him, he, he leaves the revenue police and heads for America. So, I mean, he's, he's, an, he's effectively a nobody when he lands up in New York and okay. he builds himself up through the 1850s. He becomes a very, I mean, he's a key figure in the formation of the Fenian movement. He was a significantly bigger player in the Fenian movement than, say, Mar, like Mar's Fenian credentials, the, the extent to which they're even there. I mean, he was a big young Irelander, but Corcoran is proper Fenian material. And he kind of comes in through the war, through this militia, right? So he, he rises up through the ranks in the Irish militia units in New York. And he is the colonel of the 69th New York State Militia when the war breaks out. He'd achieved an awful lot of notoriety in 1860 because the Prince of Wales had gone on a visit to America and the 69th New York State Militia were told that they, by the governor of New York, that they would be one of the units that would have to parade at his arrival. And Corcoran refuses to parade the unit for British royalty. Right, and so Corcoran is actually under court martial proceedings when the war breaks out, but these are quickly dropped when the, the South starts firing. And so Corcoran goes out at leading the 69 York State Militia. So Mar is serving under him as a captain, and he is very famously captured at Bull Run, first Bull Run. And most guys, particularly in the first couple of years of the war, are exchanged very quickly, so they would do prisoner swaps. But an incident called the Trent Affair had occurred on the Atlantic where the Union had taken a couple of emissaries off this vessel. And that and 
the threat that they were going to execute other Confederates who they were accusing of piracy led them to hold back a number of officers uh, who they said they would execute. And so Corcoran spends an awful long time incarcerated until all these issues are resolved. Um, but he eventually gets released and he, because of his experiences in the South, is a legend. He's become famous not only among Irish America, but across the North as this hero. Right. And quickly a book is produced about his circumstances and everything. He gets a promotion to general and he starts to form his own brigade. So a lot of guys, a lot of really hardline Fenians refused to enter the Irish brigade under Mar because they wanted to wait for Corcoran. And, and so he forms that Irish Legion which includes the, the 69th New York State Militia, the original one, the 69th Volunteers who go off with Mara, a different unit. And they, and they head off. And Corcoran also doesn't have a good end. He, he's involved in an incident where he shoots a, a Lieutenant Colonel Kimball, another Union officer, because this officer wouldn't allow him to pass outside Suffolk, Virginia, which there are court martial proceedings for. He's kind of getting getting through that. Um, and Marr is actually down on a visit with him in late 1863. And anyway, he's riding back from leaving Marr off at the station. And he, he, he either has a fit or he falls from his horse. And that, that leads to his death. His brigade had never seen major combat by the time he died. They'd been right. operating in a part of Virginia that wasn't seen. Like, they'd fought, but not mass battles. In 1864, they would be moved up to fight with the Army of the Potomac in the main campaign and they're absolutely annihilated in the campaigns of 1864 so a lot of those guys die on on the battlefields in northern virginia in in that year but they're the two the two leading lights and i, I mean there's a big disparity mar has had an awful lot of work done on him i think there still needs to be more done on mar in the war itself but that kind of flawed character but Cochrane, um, it, it's kind of inexplicable that there hasn't been significantly much more done on him because he's so significant for the Irish New York. It's strange that these figureheads have nothing done about them. Actually, every year, every Patrick's Day, representatives from the Irish Defence Forces, especially the, the Reserve Defence Forces from Sligo, they head over to New York and they'll march in the parade as well. So they are. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I well, I mean, and the, the 69th still lead the parade. Yeah, yeah. That the 69th still lead it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. incredible history of a unit. That's brilliant. Actually, um, one of my mates is a two-star private. So he went over right. in uniform and he uh, he was going around and he was in the 69th Armoury and Barracks and all that kind of And everybody started saluting him because they all thought he was a two-star general. <laughs> <laughs> I think he didn't disabuse him of that. I think yeah, he didn't dissuade them other ways as well. <laughs> he was like, "Yeah, brilliant. That's great." Yeah, yeah he was loving it. <laughs> yeah, so it's amazing that, like, even still to this day, that Corcoran is kind of the forgotten star about it. So you were saying that two hundred thousand, possibly even two hundred fifty thousand Irishmen are fighting, and the vast majority are, you know, kind of going in as privates, but. There are a number, like, you know, Shields, Mar, Corcoran, a number of other lads. There are some generals as well that are all yeah. Irish. Yeah, there are. So, uh, depending on how you count them, um, there's 12 or 13 Irish-born generals in the in the Northern Service and six Irish-born in the Confederate Service. So, the Confederacy comes quite close. If you think about the disparity in numbers between services, yes. I mean, the Irish are doing quite well in the Confederacy. And by and large, the best ones particularly in Northern service, aren't really remembered at all in mm. Ireland. So, like, the two best Irish generals of the war would be a guy 
Patrick Henry Jones is one of them. And very few people uh, know about him. He's from Westmead. There's been a fantastic biography written of him. One of the very few to have a biography um, written about them by, by a super historian called Mark Dunkelman. But uh, he, he commanded a New York regiment and then gets promoted and is serving. He, he starts the first couple of years of the war. He's fighting in Virginia and places like Chancellorsville. Um, and then he, he spends the latter end of the war down in the, in the Western theater. The one I think who's there's not really much question that he's the best, you know, actual general is a guy called Tom Smith. Nobody knows who he is. <laughs> Actually, in fairness, not, not that many know about him in America either. He was from Ballyhooley in County Cork. And he was just so incredibly efficient. He rose up to command a, a regiment. He was wounded, for example, in, in command of his regiment um, during Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg. And then continues up, gets his, gets his general star. He briefly commands the Irish Brigade, but is just generally seen as an unbelievably good commander. And he, he has a, an unfortunate claim to fame, if you like, in that he was leading, when the war was in its final days, when Lee's army was being closed in on around Appomattox Courthouse. He was out front just a, just a few days before the surrender, pushing on when he gets struck by a skirmisher's bullet. He's carried off to um, a house not very far, far away. And he dies on the morning that Lee surrenders to Grant at Appomattox. And yeah. he's the last Union general to lose his life as a result of um, enemy fire during the American Civil War. And, and he was much lamented, like guys like George Meade, who'd be a very famous general and everything. They all talk about the loss of Smith, that, how terrible it was. So they're all, they're all very notable. The other, of course, the one that you can't ever leave out in this conversation is the highest ranking general on either side in the Civil War is fighting for the Confederacy, and he's Patrick Renan Claiborne. And that's a very interesting story because Claiborne is well known in America, particularly if you're in American Civil War circles, but virtually unheard of in Ireland. Claiborne has a city of, I think it's 50-odd thousand people in Texas named after him. He has two counties named after him, statues all over the place. He has three or four, three biographies written of him. Claiborne is um, worth going into in, in a bit of detail. He's born into a Protestant family in Cork. His father was working in the medical profession for the British military around Ballincollig, around the, the, the military set up there. And they have a, he kind of doesn't have an easy rise of life, even though they're from a well-to-do background. His father dies when he's relatively young, and the, the family have to downsize. And the course of his life changes because he tries to follow in his father's footsteps by going into the Royal College of Surgeons, and he, he fails the entrance exam. And when he fails the entrance exam above in Dublin, he's too ashamed to go back to the family. And he goes down to the Royal Barracks, as was then Collins Barracks now, mm -hmm. and he enlists as an enlisted man in the mm -hmm. British Army. And he spends the next few years of his, his life in the British Army during the famine period. He's around the Midlands, actually, and then he serves down around North Cork and stuff. But... His family don't know where he is. He's disappeared off the, the map until a friend of the family who's an officer uh, is looking at the arrayed ranks of one of the regiments and he, he sees him. And so that's when it becomes clear that what he's done and so he's kind of reunited with the family then. But he, he's not having a great time in the army. Obviously, it's not 
there's a lot of Irish guys in the British Army who are seeing what the state of Ireland during the famine is and everything. And he eventually buys his way out of the military and he and, and the rest of the family leave for America. He lands in the South. Uh, he lands in New Orleans. Again, this is kind of the thing, the, the, the kind of chance moves. You know, I often, it's very interesting. He fails that exam. If he doesn't fail it, where does his life end up? It yeah. doesn't end up becoming the highest ranking general in the American Civil War. He lands in New Orleans. If he lands in New, New York, again, it's probably a different story. But he goes up and settles in a kind of a, what's still practically frontier, a town called Helena in Arkansas, where he becomes active in local politics. He begins to make a life for himself. He becomes really involved with the local community. So his life in Ireland has been a disaster. His life in Arkansas is anything but a disaster. He's on a real upward curve. So when the war breaks out, he, he, he goes to fight for Arkansas. And he consistently, again, climbs through merit, through the ranks. So he leads the brigade at the Battle of Shiloh in early 1862. He's already kind of on the up and up. And he becomes a major general. Uh, then in early 1864, he puts a proposal forward that if the South want to have any possibility of winning the war, they need to start enlisting the enslaved African-Americans four million of them in the South, and that one of the reciprocal things that they should then guess is their freedom. And he puts that forward, and it's vigorously suppressed because there's not much interest in any... That's what the war is about, so there's not really much interest um, in having um, freed enslaved people. And he never gets promoted beyond that. I mean, you'd think it, it almost certainly was a factor that he didn't. And he, on the, the 30th of November, 1864, during this very, very... To put a kindly ill-advised charge that uh, the Army of Tennessee launched against fortified Union positions at a town called Franklin in Tennessee is killed at the head of his troops there, and and that's that's the end of Patrick Claiborne. But he he has, if you like, if anything, his his reputation has almost been enhanced because he has that saving grace of of having put forward that proposal. It, 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 he just is an exceptionally famous individual for all of those reasons. But interestingly, he's, he lived more years in Ireland than he did in America, which I always find interesting. But like his entire life story is all crammed into that bit from from when he lands in America. So yeah, so he's the highest ranking on either side, but a real leading light in the Confederate military. Yeah, I, I remember reading that. Yeah, once you propose that about arming uh, the slaves, normally that would be a, a dismissible offence, but because they were so short and he was so good, they couldn't get rid of a fighting man like Claiborne. Yeah, a, lo- a lot of a lot of guys who were in the army supported him. A lot, a lot of um, so they they sent the proposal up to the, the the commanding general of the army, who immediately, although I, I think he probably had some sympathy for it, he immediately recognised that this wasn't going to fly like that. You couldn't have it. But what happened was a couple of fire eating um, generals, a guy called William Walker and stuff, wanted to make sure that it got to the government in Richmond. They wanted to make sure that his proposal was known, and it was suppressed. Um, after that. So, I mean, it was only by chance, most of the copies and everything were destroyed. It was only by chance afterwards that it was found that, that this had happened. The Confederacy actually did then approve this, but they did it in the dying days of the war right. when it was too late for them to affect us. I mean, I think it was too late for them to affect us anyway. It's an interesting, it's an interesting aspect of his service. Another general popped into my head there the other day, Irish general in the Confederacy was Lane. He's on the other side of that coin. Lane would be, I think that the... It's probably best he's not around. would be, yeah, he, he would have led 
he would have led an awful lot. He would have been involved in a lot of white supremacy stuff, KKK mm. activities in Texas mm. after the war, and would have led an awful lot of um, effectively trying to take back, as they saw it, their entitlements from the um, emancipated African Americans. So, like, I mean, a really interesting. He, he was rabbit, <laughs> I yeah. have to say, for, for that. But yeah, so there's, a, I mean, there's a really interesting mix of a lot of those guys. I did some work a few years ago looking at like how many the proportion of Irish guys who were ranked colonel and above in the Confederacy who owned African-American people, who were enslaving African-American people, which is interesting in itself. And you see mm. some of them are, are, there's a guy called Finnegan, um, who was actually, he was one of the, the, the delegates for when Florida secedes from the Union, who, who has a, a fairly big plantation. He's from Clonus in Manahan. And Finnegan, like that, would have had very set views in relation to what he saw um, as his entitlements in relation to enslaved people. But he, he was actually the de facto commander of a, a notorious battle where uh, African-American troops fought and uh, a lot of them were massacred after the, the, the event. Although there was some question of the extent to which he was actually, although he was he was technically in command, the extent to which he was actually exercising any operational command on the field is a question. But Finnegan is another one of those. But yeah, they're a mixed bunch and like I, I, I will, we're probably going to talk about it in, shortly, but I mean, you know, not there are a mixed bunch as well for the north. But so probably best that we don't remember Lane. Well, we, we probably should. I mean, we did. We need. Well, we yeah, need to true. study I these mean, guys. That does it does kind of argue. I mean, the point that you know, Irish going over there were racist as well. I've been doing a lot of work on this recently, and I kind of have a. We do. It's a, it's a broader issue. We have. A, we like to have a perception of ourselves as as kind of a country that's always in the right, like, you know, we've been victimised by our history and everything like that. We need to have a more honest discussion about our place in world history in terms of, of where we serve. And it's a history that needs to be told, and people are, then are too simplistic either one way or another often in relation to stuff. Individuals are complicated, and history is complicated, and we try to simplify it into these were goodies and these were baddies too too much. But but it's it's it's... Like, I've been doing a lot of work recently, for example, on, on Irish attitudes towards African-Americans, both North and South, mainly the North, in the American Civil War. And there's a whole suite of things that we have to understand. We can cast judgments on the level of racism, and they were exceptionally racist. Both the Irish in the North and the South were very racist towards African-Americans. What we often fail to understand as we look down with our superior viewpoints of today is that if we were alive then, we almost certainly would have had the same views. The, the numbers who were different to them are minuscule. And so we have to go go and try and understand what their perspective was. And if you look at the guys in the North, like Irish Americans in the North had no time for African Americans. They were really exceptionally racist. But the more work I've done, the more clarity there is in the fact that Irish people, when they emigrated, had a very firm belief in their own white supremacy. It was an unshakable belief. Most people in North America had that. Most abolitionists had yes. a firm, unshakable belief in white supremacy. So it's a baseline that we have to think about. We spent a lot of time recently, and rightly so, looking at things like Frederick Douglass's time in Ireland. And it's kind of given us this warm glow that we treated him really well and everything. And that's there's a baseline, particularly, I, I think, among the poorer people. But generally, there's a baseline belief in white supremacy that's in Ireland that people are taking with them in America. I've seen too many recent immigrants involved in racist events in the 1860s particularly to, to uh, I have that's unshakable for me um, 
And so I think you then have to put it into perspective. So you go over, if we look at it from the Northern perspective, you believe you're a superior race to black people, right? That's their belief. Then they're in a situation where there are a lot of people in Northern society who hate their guts. They just don't like Catholics. They don't like the fact that they're immigrants. They don't like the fact that they're poor. There's big, huge class divisions. So you're seeing yourself, you're the next level up. You don't see yourself as anything close to African-Americans, but you see that they are seen as somebody who can compete with you in your economic pool. They're people who you see as people who can take money away from your family, your entitlement, and your white. That's the way they're viewing it. And these people are not white. Why do they have this entitlement to do it? And that's leading to an awful lot of violence because you're at the apex of the two communities challenging each other as the irish american saw it i'm not saying any of this is right this is just what yeah. i believe to be the case and and you have added to, into all that mix in the north the fact of politics and so a lot of the abolitionist movement would have been very anti-irish in their outlook and irish americans know that a lot of abolitionists even by people Fast bulk of people in the north saw abolitions as radicals, that they were kind of way over in in kind of the far corner of the political extreme, right? So that's the kind of picture that's there when this war breaks out. And the, so the Irish have all this. They're also very strong constitutionalists in the north. They believe in the preservation of the constitution. The co- constitution allowed slavery. And so they saw it as a property issue and that, that it would you couldn't undermine the constitution. They're overwhelmingly Democrats because the Democratic Party has welcomed them in. The Republican Party, which is a relatively new party, didn't have much time for the Irish. The Democrats were enabling them to become a political force. The Democrats are anti-abolition as well. And so you throw all these things into the mix, and so there's nobody. Nobody is is too too all-encompassing. There's very few Irish guys, either in northern or southern uniform, going off to war caring about African-Americans and their future or the fact that they're enslaved and have horrific lives. And so when the Emancipation Proclamation comes in in 1863, a lot of Irish guys are very, very upset. Some of them desert. A lot of them speak out against this. A lot of them don't desert. A lot of them stay in the military. It's often seen as this major turning point. Again, I'm not as convinced it is in terms of Irish military service. But all of these things add in to this mix. But the, the sum total of it leads to and I, I've done work on, you know, I've done work on a guy from Cork who emigrates in 1860 and is serving in the Union military and attempts multiple rapes on African Americans of different ages over in Arkansas. It's absolutely horrific, horrific stuff. And of course, gets away with it all. Lives a lot, life dies in the 20th century in, in New York. It's inconceivable to me that that guy is leaving from Cork as an adult going off with a willingness to do this to other human beings and isn't thinking I'm a superior individual, this white supremacy stuff. So the Civil War is interesting for all that. It's quite a controversial topic, of course. But like, it's an interesting aspect from the Irish service because there is no question, there's just no debate anymore, any reasonable debate about what causes the American Civil War. African-American slavery is the cause of the American Civil War. That is why the guns start firing. You're on a different topic when you talk about why a lot of the Irish Americans actually then choose to to serve because it's not a big issue for them. It's a it's a really interesting discussion, particularly from the northern aspect, because these guys 
who don't have much time for African Americans generally are a major part of the military who are enabling the emancipation to take place. And I suppose that boils to a head most noticeably, I, I suppose, with the draft riots. Yeah, so the 1863 draft riots. So to give a bit of background on that, when the war starts, everybody is uh, volunteers. That's all great. And there's a, there's two kind of major waves of volunteering in 1861 and 1862. And then everybody sees that people are dying in serious numbers here it's a bit like the first world war kind of will be over soon and um, people always think the war is going to be over soon actually throughout the war they're always saying oh i think it'll be over now this after this campaign but it doesn't end and the confederacy bring in a draft really quickly they, they, they have to bring in one quite early in the war because they need the manpower right so they're it's a very different situation in the north but so the, the north starts a draft light if you like in late 1862 where people have to serve in the militia um if you're drafted but then they, in 1863, it's clear that they need significant numbers of guys to try and maintain the, the war effort. And so they bring in this act called the Enrollment Act. And so this is, the, this is the one that's going to draft people all over the place. So you have a volunteer quota. And if your area doesn't meet the volunteer quota, there's going to be a draft. This is the kind of backstory to all of this. A lot of towns, what they start doing is they start paying guys to come to their town to enlist so that they'll raise their volunteer quota. A lot of Irish guys do that, so they're paid bounties to do that. A lot of fellas do it. But anyway, the draft is about to come into place in July of 1863, and working-class people generally, and remember we were talking about the sheer number of Irish working-class people, like in a lot of parts of Manhattan, it would have been one in every two people was Irish. Manhattan is dominated by Irish working classes, but working-class people in general looked at this act, and what they saw was that if you had $300 and your name was called, you could pay that as a commutation fee and you could get away and not serve. And so the perception was that the rich were not fighting and they were going to send working class out. And so a lot of working class people, of course, had been died in their droves anyway in the war. There's a whole background. Ivor Bernstein, who's the main historian of the draft riots, has put forward very convincing arguments. There's a whole kind of class element. There's a whole employment element. There's a labor movement element to all of this. It's not just as simple as as we often portray it, the draft riots. So that when the, the names are supposed to be called for the first time, there's an explosion of violence in New York. And that's the the draft riots, not the only draft violence across the north, but it is the major one, and it's one of the biggest riots that's ever taken place. And it, it, it's a, it goes on for a number of days, and there's various groups who come in and come out of involvement in it, but the Irish are there in big numbers, and they do things like specifically target African-Americans, so they lynch African-Americans when they find them, blaming them for, for the conflict. Um, they burn down the Coloured Orphans Asylum, for example, a lot of people would have immediately said, oh, look at the Irish. They're destroying the home front. They're not being loyal citizens and things like this. And it does. It permanently affects how the Irish, I think it still does. It permanently affects how the Irish commitment to the war effort has, has been viewed. So all of the work of the Irish Brigade and people like this, Thomas Francis Marr, in kind of upselling the Irish involvement was undone. Uh, Susanna Ewell, historian, has done really great work on showing that this was the case, that this is his longevity of ill feeling as a result of the draft riots but so it's a, it's a much more complex melting pot than simply irish people were really racist towards african-american the, the irony of it all of course is that uh, i said it earlier very few drafted men ever actually 
serve. They didn't realise this at the time, but in fact, you had a really good chance to get away out of it, even if you were Irish and you were drafted, because you could claim, and a lot of them did this, that, oh, I'm a foreign citizen, I'm from somewhere else. So a lot of them got out of the draft doing that, or they claimed some sort of disability. And then a lot of areas to try and avoid violence, a lot of cities and stuff started to pay commutation fees to stop people serving. And so that's why this... And it, it gets much less attention, but that's why the sub- substitution becomes the major thing because the Irish are very overrepresented among substitutes. So these people who are paying are being paid increasingly massive amounts of money to go and serve in somebody's place as as the war continues. So a, a really interesting discussion. There's violence in other places like Detroit in early 1863 that the Irish are heavily involved in where they go and they attack African-American areas as well. So there's a whole a whole kind of murky set of circumstances behind all of these different issues. But they had a lasting legacy in how the Irish-American service was seen and, and their loyalty to the Union. How do you come back from racism then? Well, I mean, I think it's I think it's important to say that, I mean, I think it, we need to have a lot more discussion about it. I think there was a lot of guys would have been pro-emancipation as well. Mm-hmm. There's so many. When you have a quarter of a million men yeah, serving exactly. in blue, you, you can't walk. just tear them They're off. not all a pack of screaming racists, right? And, like, there's different degrees to which they did or they didn't care about African-Americans. Mm-hmm. For a lot of them, if you're living in a tenement in the five points where you may be serving at the front and your wife... I've come across this plenty of times as well. The wife dies at home. You get a letter saying your wife is dead. All your children have been placed in charitable care. You can't leave the front. Mm. You're you're stuck. You're not going to care about the fate of the four million enslaved people in this, and that's that's the fundamental bones of it, right? You do believe. I, I think often because Irish people were very poor over there, we kind of we were a bit reductive in the fact that they didn't have pride in who they were or where they were from or anything. I think mm. there's a lot of that. You see a lot of that. I think it's a bit the same as today. You know, people who were living in paupers' cabins down in West Kerry, remembered if 300 years ago, their family were the ones who inaugurated the local king. They're proud people. They're really poor, though, and they have their own worries. There's a certain element of privilege to being able to have this kind of high moral viewpoint of, you know, well, those four million people down there should be free. Like, when, when the entire... Country is more or less agreed. Well, we don't think they're equal to us, though. But, like, you're not going to really care about that if you're living hand-to-mouth day by day. And so you have to have that as a baseline. And so, and so, like, the numbers of people, we have to remember, the New York City draft riots, the vast, vast majority of Irish people who lived in New York City had nothing to do with the draft riots, right? So, again, these are the type of... We have to put it into perspective. Um, if you read the letters of the guys at the front... Most of the, the Irish guys who were in service don't have much time for the lads who are rioting either. So, you know, it's really complicated. There, there are a few Irish guys who, who, who are Republicans who, are re- who really strongly believe in emancipation. Guiney, who, who commands the 9th Massachusetts, not that he gets much love, it has to be said, from other officers in his regiment for it, but he, he would be one of those who would see it as, um, as good. So, you know, it's, it, it, again, it's, it's a complicated story, but... There's reasons for it. And I, I think it's too easy for us to just look back and say, well, the whole lot of them were racist, weren't they terrible people? Most of them were racist, but they weren't terrible people, if, if that makes sense. Um, and, of course, from a historic perspective for the guys who fought for the North, it's quite a legacy 
historically for them to have to have played a role in ending the enslavement of those people because like i mean it was the great triumph of the american civil war was to end enslavement so it's 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 a complicated thing and you know i think it's worth noting that a lot of guys stay and fight and die even if they disagree with the politics of it they stay there and they stay they believe that preserving the union preserving the united states is the key thing it's more important than anything to do with the Emancipation Proclamation. And they stay there and they're buried all up and down places like Virginia and Andersonville, Georgia, uh, is the proof of it. So, I suppose you can kind of see the comparisons as well with the Irish in the British Army during the First World War, during the 1916 Rising, where it's, some of them were like, yeah, that's, that's not cool. And they come home and fight later on and others just have no time for it as well. I mean, it's an interesting, it's an, and it's interesting as a kind of a follow-on from that about, you know, there's another kind of perception. It's actually come mainly out of a film as well, you know, of, of when Irish guys met each other on the battlefield. This kind of big, Fredericksburg is the big one for that. There's kind of a perception that they all had massive issues, you know, with, that are kind of killing, killing brother, killing brother. And really, there's almost no evidence that they ever had those type of issues. I, I think a lot of it comes back to this idea that they were more... Irish than they were American. Irish guys who were fighting for the North and Irish guys who were fighting for the South thought that the Irish on the other side were fundamentally incorrect. So, for example, there's a there's a famous scene in a in a rather not very good film called Gods and Generals where where they have the Irish behind the stone wall at Fredericksburg, Confederate Irish, crying as they're pulling the trip. There's no evidence that they had any issue in mowing down their fellow countrymen because they. They saw them as fighting for the wrong cause of both sides did. I think the casualty numbers as well, the Irish and the Union Army of Fredericksburg kind of proves that they didn't have any issue shooting them. Yeah, I mean, there's a great, there's a great um, diary by a guy, he fought in the 1st Virginia Infantry, a guy called Dooley. They were a family of Limerick hatters who emigrated over to Richmond and kind of made it big in high society. And um, the 1st Virginia had a lot of interesting Irish people in it. John Mitchell who would have been uh, 1848 Young Irelander with Thomas Francis Marr. John Mitchell is a big apologist for... Apologist isn't, isn't strong enough. He was a big proponent of slavery in the South. He, he advocated reopening the African-American slave trade. Obviously, in Ireland, he's known for completely different reasons. But he would have been a very strong supporter of the Confederacy. And three of his sons went and served, and two of them lost their lives. And Willie Mitchell was in the 1st Virginia Infantry with John Dooley, and they... They're in Pickett's Charge, the famous Pickett's Charge, and Willie Mitchell is killed in that, John Mitchell's son. But uh, Dooley is, is wounded and he's taken prisoner, and he talks about having this, uh, he's, he's been taken away at Gettysburg by a couple of Irish guys in Union uniform, and he's talking about an argument that he's having with them. He's saying, what, what are you doing serving in the Northern military? You should be serving with us. You're just perpetuating exactly the same as Britain. Now, as he tells it, he persuaded them. He persuaded them that they, right. they all were on the wrong side. But uh, I, I think that's probably doubtful enough. I, their counter arguments would have been would have been quite strong as well. But that's so that they see themselves as being fundamentally wrong usually. Actually, you mentioned uh, Fredericksburg. So let's just get into the Irish in battle. Obviously, the the numbers of Irish that die and the number of Irish that fight is massive. Even though. The Irish Brigade, they're certainly not the largest ethnic unit. I think the Germans... Yeah, so the Germans served together in... They kind of coalesced more. So there's probably less Germans kind of spread out around different units than there would have been, uh, then say, for the Irish. 
And it, it actually impacts the Germans really badly because the Germans are very dominant in an entire core of the Army of the Potomac called the 11th Corps at a place called Chancellorsville. And Stonewall Jackson crushes into their flank and crumples their flank. Now, they don't really, you know, they're, they're not inferior troops to anyone else, but particularly in the 19th century America, and particularly the Germans, because the Germans didn't speak English, which was they, something that the Irish had over them. The Irish didn't like the Germans in a lot of instances either, and vice versa. But the Germans get blamed for that defeat at Chancellorsville, and the 11th Corps, of which they're a part, is, is then at Gettysburg, and they're the ones who, who are involved in the first day. And again, through overwhelming numbers, it's not there because they didn't perform well. The 11th Corps is pushed off at Gettysburg as well. And it permanently impacts how Germans are perceived. Because So that was the risk of serving... Now, there were plenty of non-Germans in the 11th Corps. Uh, Patrick Henry Jones, who we were talking about earlier, his, his unit served in the 11th Corps. But, the, but because there were overwhelming numbers of Germans in that, it permanently impacted how Germans were seen in the conflict. So that's, that was the kind of swings and roundabouts. So if you performed really well, like the Irish Brigade were perceived to have done um, in many of their battles, you, you got this incredible kudos for it. But if you were seen to have done something that wasn't acceptable, it could have a mass impact for your ethnicity as well so so no no irish serve in those type of numbers but if you were to look at the most irish army of the war it's the army of the potomac which is the union army that fights the war in northern virginia that's where they're based so there's significantly more irish guys who have been fighting at battlefields like fredericksburg gettysburg antietam than there would have been say in the western theater battles like chickamauga like Chattanooga, Atlanta. There's plenty of Irish there. There's thousands yeah. of Irish there. But there's huge numbers because most of the major eastern units out of New York and Pennsylvania are in that army. And so, and so they're serving there. So that's the battlefields where most Irish fighting where most die. I wanted to talk about Fredericksburg and how the Irish get on there. Obviously at Marie's Heights, they get shot down in huge numbers. Yeah, the Irish... Um, I mean, there's just such a multitude of stories about the Irish in Fredericksburg generally. I was mentioning that 20th Massachusetts Infantry earlier, the Harvard Regiment. A lot of Irish in that unit killed on the streets, the street fighting. The the Union Army are pushing across the Rappahannock River there. And they take the town of Fredericksburg and, and then they, they start to form up to look to attack. And it, I mean, it's a, it's a wider front, but the one that everyone remembers is this high ground that's just beyond the town called Marie's Heights. And it was always said in years afterwards, you know, that uh, the Irish were attacking Marie's Heights and the fields on Marie's Heights had been used to grow corn, grain that was sent to Ireland during the famine, you know, and the guys had kept these guys alive and then they're trying to take this territory back. Of course, it's all, well, almost certainly apocryphal stuff. But in any event, this incredibly strong Confederate position is up on this high ground. Uh, artillery ranged in from all over the field. One of the Confederate artillery commanders spoke about how a chicken couldn't live on that field when they opened fire on it. And so the, the units that are coming across the Rappahannock have to form up in the in the streets of Fredericksburg where they begin to take this artillery fire and then they have to move out into the open ground beyond. And they have a series of obstacles that they have to go across a, a, a canal and, and then move on up this rising ground in line. And the way units fall in this period was called they used to call it touch of the elbow so they would they would advance in two ranks shoulder to shoulder usually at a, at a walking pace would advance faster as they came forward and that that was the way you moved in to battle and it's become 
it's an interesting battle because they're intrinsically linked with Fredericksburg. They immediately think Irish Brigade to Fredericksburg. It's just, yeah. uh, and it's that's not just Irish people or Irish Americans who do that. Everybody immediately associates Fredericksburg with the Irish Brigade, and and there's a there's an element of propaganda to that because the Irish were really efficient in the memoirs that they wrote immediately after the war and generally of bigging up their participation, which was, and I mean it is an epic story, but they were far from alone. The Confederates were behind the stone wall with all this artillery support and high ground behind them, and the Union Army just threw brigade after brigade after brigade against this position to try and take it, right. thinking that everyone, sending them up in ones, in groups of ones, not coordinating them. And the Irish are one of those brigades that are brought up. They don't take the highest casualties of Union brigades. There's some dispute as to whether they were closest to the wall, which becomes like, were you dead closer to the wall? Yeah. Then, which is kind of a an interesting... Um, bragging right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, But in, in any event... It, it becomes famous because they are. It's it's horrific. They they form up. Famously, um, the Irish carried green flags into action, and so there are five regiments of the brigade. Then the 116 Pennsylvania have joined them. The 28th Massachusetts Infantry had had only recently joined them as well, uh, an Irish unit. The three New York green flags, because of the heavy fighting previously, their green flags were in tatters, and so they'd been sent back to New York. The 116 Pennsylvania, which was a bit more mixed, never had, never carried a green flag. So the 28 Massachusetts were the only regiment to carry this green flag up the heights. And as they formed up to take the attack, Mar famously wanted them to have some recognition of their unit because their green flags had become famous on the battlefield even by then. And and so he got the men to, to pick up sprigs of boxwood there and they put right. it in their hats. Uh, and they advance up and into this storm of fire and are decimated advancing over the ranks of dead and dying men and they in turn would be advanced over by others plenty of irish and other units having to walk and step over the bodies a lot of them those who survive can't actually even retreat when they have to come down in the face of this sheet of fire they're, they're hiding behind buildings and in in hollows in the ground a lot of people can't make their way off the field until darkness gives them some cover to get back and it's interesting because the the Irish Brigade, like it's a real low point. It's a low point of the war for the entire army. Morale just sinks because they, they lose so many men there. And at the same time, there's a growing feeling among some of the veterans of the brigade that they're being used as cannon fodder. A lot of people at home are thinking about this as well, but they weren't allowed to go back and refit after Fredericksburg. And some of the men in the ranks actually thought it was because they were Irish. I have a letter from a guy who says, it's on account of we being Irish. We're not allowed to go back and refit. There's no evidence that that was actually the case, but it was a perception that formed. But they never recover from it in terms of numbers. When they take the field in Gettysburg, which they're obviously famous for a few months later, mm -hmm. like they're a shell of the unit that they were. Antietam, that happens in September 1862, and Fredericksburg, that happens in December 1862, how anyone who served in that brigade could come out of either of those two experiences and in any way like have a normal mental state is beyond conception because they just took colossal losses. They, it effect, they effectively, those two engagements, destroyed the Irish brigade for all intents and purposes. Like the Gettysburg, they performed very well at Gettysburg. They're very small. And kind of after that, it, it, they... they you know, they, they never really recover from it. 
Yeah, by Gettysburg, like you said, they're a shell, and that's fairly common when you read about it, that Fredericksburg is kind of the, not the swan song as such, but... Yeah, and I mean, they stamped their they stamped their mark on the battle. That's what's so interesting about it. So within, like, even just within a few weeks of the battle happening, and within within a couple of years of the war ending, they're they're marking down their territory that they, that they see this as the as their moment. And and I mean, it's it's something that they 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 succeeded in doing. They succeeded in having Fredericksburg as the landmark Irish battle of the war. And Fredericksburg becomes a, a an interesting thing for everybody because it's like this this heroic defeat, like the fact that they just kept coming wave after wave when everybody knew what the result was going to be, um, and and famously, and it did happen a few months later after the big mass Confederate charge against another stone wall at Gettysburg, um, Union men behind the wall after they drive back the Confederates are shouting Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, at the retreating rebels because they see it as, as the as the flip side of what had occurred. But it was very low point, like a, a few weeks after, just a couple of weeks after um, uh, Fredericksburg, they go on this, it's actually in nearly everybody's letters and memoirs, they always remembered in early January 1863, the Union Army try another manoeuvre, but it gets bogged down in horrific weather and mud, and everybody's miserable, and it becomes known as the Mud March, okay. and nearly everybody writes about it in their letters, like more so than in battles, because at that point, they are so low from a morale perspective, it's unbelievable. The yeah. Army of Potomac never is lower than that in the war. But yeah, and of course for the Irish on the other side, you know, it's it's a good day. Not for the Irish Brigade. Not for the Irish Brigade is right. Speaking of Gettysburg, don't they consider that the high water mark of the Confederacy and that the pickets charge, everybody's running on the Union side, and then at the Yangle there's the Pennsylvania 69th, and they kind of hold their ground and you know, stop Pickett's charge. Yeah, I mean, Gettysburg, you could write multiple books about the Irish at Gettysburg, particularly in, in on the northern side, but there's a whole lot of firsts in it. So on the first day of the battle there, the first Confederate general to be taken prisoner since Robert E. Lee took command of the army in North Virginia is taken on the first day of the battle by a famous group of Westerners called the Iron Brigade. And the guy who takes him is an Irish fella who runs across the stream and knocks a couple of guys over and grabs grabs Archer, this general, and pulls him back. And it kind of goes on from there. There's just Irish everywhere. There's Fenians all over the place on both sides. So one of the guys who comes back to lead the Fenian rising in, in 1867 in Tipperary is badly wounded fighting for the Louisianans going to a place called Cubs Hill. You, you have a whole load of Fenians fighting for the 42nd New York, the Tammany Regiment, who on the third day take big casualties as well. Um, and a number of leading Fenians die there. A guy, a guy called James Rorty from Donegal Town, who was a major Fenian and fought 69 New York State Militia, dies heroically defending one of the Union batteries that he was in command of, facing off Pickett's charge. On the second day of the battle, which is known for around little round happened yesterday, the Irish Brigade fight in the Wheatfield. Work I did, the US regulars fight in the Wheatfield as well. And more Irishmen were serving and more Irishmen died in that US regular brigade than right. were in the Irish brigade. So it's just spread all over the place. But yeah, the point comes down to, as you mentioned, the, the stone wall, the angle, and, and this attack, this kind of mass assault across a mile of ground that Robert E. Lee launches against the centre of the Union line. And there are plenty of Irish, as I was mentioning, Rorty, the 42nd New Yorker there, but the 69 Pennsylvania really are the stars of the show. They're right at the angle. 
They're not to be confused with the 69 New York. They took on the number 69 in honour of the 69 New York State Militia who fought at Bull Run. And they were Irish, mainly Philadelphians. And a lot of the Irish from Philadelphia, it's an interesting geographical spread because it's a lot of Ulster Irish go to Philadelphia and emigrate there. And so the 69 Pennsylvania has a very strong Ulster connection. And the Confederates keep coming and keep coming. Guys like Willie Mitchell, John Mitchell's son are all in this attack. And they reached the stone wall and asked the area where the 69 Pennsylvania were holding, they come across that wall. And the, the 69 Pennsylvania famously have to refuse their, their flank. The guys on the right of the 69 Pennsylvania effectively are forced back. They, they retreat. The 69 who are, again, they're a very much reduced unit at this point. They've had some hard fighting the previous day. They have to refuse the right of their line. So effectively, they're at a 90-degree angle. And they are surrounded by Confederates. And you read some of the accounts of it, and it's bone-chilling stuff. Very rare that there was ever hand-to-hand fighting in the American Civil War. Usually, firepower forces one side back when they're still yards away. So most men went through the war. They never used their bayonets. They were never in hand-to-hand combat. Now, there were guys in the 69th Pennsylvania being clubbed down with their skulls being smashed open around the wall. There were guys in the 69th Pennsylvania who were actually captured and brought back they were actually taken back across the mile of land and they end up dying in southern prisons. The only men that that happened to uh, out of Pickett's charge. But they hold their position and the, the eventually more Pennsylvania, the part of the Pennsylvania Brigade, more Pennsylvanians are pushed forward and, and they, along with huge numbers of other troops, are integral in, in pushing back that attack. And it becomes known, Gettysburg is the battle of the war. If you go to the mm-hmm. Gettysburg battlefield now, if you go to most American Civil War battlefields, you won't see very many memorials running around the place. A lot of them are well preserved because of the brilliant work of the National Park Service and the Civil War trusting people. But uh, Gettysburg is where you have to be remembered, right? And so Gettysburg became the battle. There's monuments everywhere. There's a lot of Irish units who were barely engaged there who've thrown up monuments there because you have to have, you have, to have your monument right, to Gettysburg right. to be remembered. And so this thing about it being the high water mark of the Confederacy comes in. It's written about very quickly. It's actually part of this whole kind of lost cause Confederate mythology that, you know, if things had been different that day, the war would have been different. But now I don't subscribe to that view at all. It's a very important battle. At the same time, at exactly the same time, Vicksburg fall into Ulysses S. Grant and Mississippi is taken, splits the Confederacy in two, equally as important. But, you know, th- there's an idea that the war is kind of on an inevitable trajectory after Gettysburg, that the Confederates are going to lose, and that is not the case at all. For me, 1864 is the key year of the war. And th- that's, it's, you read a lot of these guys' accounts and if you look at the early warriors, say if you read the history of the Irish Brigade written by David Power Cunningham, a Tipperary guy, yeah, it came out in 1867 really quickly. A lot of these histories of guys who were in the war early, they kind of go through the first, most of their accounts are taken up with 1861, 1862, 1863. There's like a kind of an honour to the way, even though it's horrific and there's a bloodbath, to the way wars are fought. Guys are going out and they're fighting big two and three day battles like that everybody remembers the Antietams, the Fredericksburgs, the Gettysburgs. And then in 1864, the war changes and the war becomes this attritional nightmare where guys are in the line for days and weeks fighting massive battle after massive battle in the the course of days. And the death toll is colossal. The Irish Brigade is refitted after Gettysburg. Um, New guys come in. 
within about two or three weeks of the 1864 campaigns uh, starting, it barely exists anymore. Uh, Corcoran's Legion are sent down, they barely exist. And this is the same of most of these units that had such proud histories, the Iron Brigade, most of them these proud histories in the first uh, few years of the war, and then it just all turns into this horrific nightmare to a degree that nobody could even imagine in 1863 by the time 1864 swings around. And so for, for me, I've always viewed the key moments of the, the American Civil War comes in late 1864, to my mind, because, you know, people see Gettysburg as this moment, but the casualties had been so immense in 1864 that an awful lot of the northern public had serious reservations about continuing the fight. And by this stage, the Confederacy doesn't have to win the war militarily. They just have to last long enough for the North not to want to fight it. And for most of 1864, it looks like Lincoln isn't going to be re-elected. It's a presidential election. It looks like Mm. he has no chance because there's bodies everywhere. And then just right up in front of the election, a few key victories start to come along. They take places like Atlanta. There's a big victory in Mobile Bay. And it becomes obvious that the war is actually being won. And it has this huge effect. I always see the, that, that, that in the election as, as the real point. But I suppose Gettysburg was the last time that you might say that they could have, that they could tactically, militarily, around that time, have, have had a, a major impact. They were always really on the defensive after that. In 1864, they were anyway, the Confederacy. And you mentioned Mobile Bay as well, and that's a major naval win for the Union. But in terms of Irish people, it's it's fairly important as well because 14 Irishmen get the Medal of Honour. So the equivalent to the Victoria Cross is the biggest single-day number of awards to Irish-born men in the history of the United States military. So, I, I mean, so many Irish... I've got a figure now that I've, I've, um, I'm at of 148... Irish-born recipients of the Medal of Honor from the American Civil War. It's incredible, actually. Again, an awful lot of work hasn't been done on them. There isn't, like, there's, there's a guy from Gettysburg that I identified was Irish-born who's down as American-born. We know remarkably little about an awful lot of them. Like, for many of them, we don't even know what county they were from or what happened to them after. So there's different types of Medal of Honor, it has to be said, in the war. So, you, you know, they weren't all created equal in terms of why you got them. And as with a lot of these awards, there can be a political component to it as well, you know. So that a lot of them are awarded decades after the war as well. But like one of the things that instantly got you a Medal of Honor was if you captured the colours of another regiment. And undoubtedly, there were a few guys who kind of just happened across colours of yeah, the regiment. Yeah. And it was like an automatic Medal of Honor. So other people did unbelievable deeds. And ju- just to go briefly back to Fredericksburg, there's a Mayo guy called Thomas Plunkett who was carrying his colours up with the 21st Massachusetts towards Murray's Heights, where the Irish Brigade had passed over. The guy carrying the colours was shot down. Uh, Plunkett was a file closer. He came up and grabbed the colours and then like gets mangled with a shell, effectively cutting off through both of his arms. He's going down but refuses to drop the flag covered in blood. Uh, just a remarkable story. Loses both his arms to amputation after they're so mangled, but becomes a, a celebrity as a result of it. But so yeah, you have you have all of this and like things like I mean the, the, the Irish in the Union Navy story that we're talking about there at Mobile Bay really has never been told. The Irish story in the Union Navy and and there's so many of them. A lot of guys would go out because you could enlist in the Navy, particularly later. You could enlist in the Navy for say a year if you wanted to. 
So you've a lot of, I've come across a lot of guys who would have been, you know, they might have been working in, on merchant vessels, kind of, maybe they were leaving Dublin or Waterford, they were going over to deliver timber to Canada or they were fishing or whatever, and then suddenly their wife gets this letter <laughs> saying, oh, by the way, I've enlisted in the Union Navy for a year because they're in the port and they go, oh, well, this is handy money. Like, and They have actually have a higher rate of return back to Ireland, I think, than the infantry guys do proportionately because there was more mariners joining it. Yeah, a lot of really interesting stories out of out of it. Some of the Mobile Bay guys don't have don't have the best lives afterwards. One of the one of the recipients there was a man who lost both his arms. I was just about to say, yeah, he's, and he's yeah. like he's ranked boy, but he's really young. And yeah, 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 and you, yeah. You get a lot of that. You get a lot of young kids in it. Um, he has an awful life after the war. It's he's remembered for the Medal of Honor, but he he moves over to a place called Vallejo in California. And he becomes an alcoholic. He becomes physically abusive to his wife. Um, his pension payments, when he gets them, he goes out gambling. And because he had no arms, other guys were holding the cards for him. And they were taking the money out of his pocket. And they were cheating him. Right. And it's just a horrific story. So, so like the guys who are maimed like that in the war, like if you're from a working class background particularly, like your life is forever changed because you, you're reliant on your limbs to make a living like yeah. there's no support for people like that so a lot of those type of stories but you know there's other guys james rona byrne received the medal of honor james rona byrne from roscommon i mean he's he's most famous and should have most recognition for he, he was the guy who kind of led the search for for john wilkes booth after lincoln was assassinated but he, he received the Medal of Honor. He was one of these guys who received it later in the 19th century for his actions on, in Chancellorsville, where he was effectively left for dead on the battlefield. But, you know, so you have, you have all of these, this kind of great range of people. I have, a, I have a, a book I started many, many years ago on it that I've not finished. There's a lot of interesting stories in relation to Medal of Honor recipients. Obviously, when we're talking about war, it's mainly a male sport. But I was just wondering if you've come across any women in your work as well. Yeah, well, nearly everything, well, it's funny, because, like, so I work on military files, nearly nearly every single thing I do is actually about the women, because it's the women's applications I'm doing. These American military records are the best records of working class 19th century women that exist anywhere. That's really, it's probably their most important aspect is what they tell us about women's lives. But so you have a whole host of, different functions that they they were in like a lot of them are trying to keep the home together i mean that's the the major thing mothers with their sons and everything dispensing advice and this but you do get different individuals who are then because of the nature of their class it wasn't within the gift of a lot of irish people on the home front to say you know go off and become volunteer nurses that's the kind of you know you see people like clara barton you tended to have to mm. be middle class or wealthy to be able to do what they did and, and go and, and help out say the sanitary commission or whatever but you do come across i have one woman again whose name escapes me now whose son died in the war she becomes a nurse she actually ended up working in there was a, a fairly short-lived but quite enjoyable drama series called mercy street about a, a union hospital during the war but she actually worked in that hospital but so, so you have women doing this, Irish women who were going off to the front and acting as nurses. Probably the best known one is a southern one, a woman from Dublin called Mary Sophia Hill, whose brother goes off and enlists in the Confederate Army. And she's concerned that he's not up for being in the military, that he's got too weak a disposition. So she says she better go off and see can she what she can do. 
And she becomes a, a really well-known nurse and afterwards is referred to as the Florence Nightingale of the Confederacy, mainly serving with Louisiana units um, in a nursing capacity. But you have some great stories then. There's a, a the Irish account, an unnamed woman in 1862 when the Irish Brigade are fighting on the peninsula and all of the guys are lying down in a row under a Confederate artillery fire. And there's talk of this Irish Brigade's wife, a, a woman who had come along to the front with her umbrella and any of the men who were kind of sneaking back out of line, she was she was whacking them on the rump with the umbrella to keep them in line. So she's actually present on the battlefield. Another well-known one is a woman called Bridget Diver. And she's like a lot of Irish Americans in that it's not clear where she was from, but she was almost certainly from the northwest of Ireland. And, and there's a very strong probability that she was from Donegal, maybe from her own clan Manny. And her husband went off. And he was fighting in the brigade, commanded by a certain guy soon to become very famous called George Armstrong Custer. And his cavalry brigade were known as the Wolverines. And fighting Bridget, as she became known, um, was there. And she provided support. So a lot of them would, would be, say, they might do washing. A lot, same with the British military, do washing and provide cooking services to the unit when they were in camp. And then they would physically go out often. And like there's images of her uh, drawn uh, saying that she, she actually picked up a gun um, at times. But the, the most famous of all on the northern side is Jenny Hodgers, who was born in Clotterhead in County Louth. And Jenny serves throughout the war as and lives the remainder of his life as Albert DJ Cashier and serves in the 95th Illinois Infantry in but is easily the most arduous area to be campaigning all through the Western theatre. So ma- marching thousands and thousands of miles, never discovered as being a woman. There, there were a few famous women who who fought as men in the war. But particularly, it's good now. Um, I wrote, I wrote, I wrote about Albert in my first book. But there's been a lot more attention recently, which is great to see about his story. But Quite a sad end again. Performs really well all through the war. Is is noted for being a really good soldier and goes back to Sonoman, Illinois, where Albert's house is still there, and lives all the way through into the early years of the twentieth century as a man. So identifies Albert identifies as a man until an automobile accident leads to the discovery that Albert is actually a, a woman, and it's it's quite sad. Then, despite you know all the service that he'd given to the military is put into a home and forced into a dress. And, and there's talk right. about how it vi- visibly distressed him. The, the redemption was, was that it uh, was that at his death, the, the veterans kind of gathered around again because of the respect for him. But um, it's a very kind of, it's a bittersweet story, that one, but absolutely remarkable. And probably the story that's getting the most recognition, I would say, since I mean, it's obviously, it's all changed since I wrote that in the book a few years ago, but getting the most recognition, I would say, of nearly anybody in, in the Civil War at the moment, which is great to see yeah, in certainly, Ireland. Certainly at a private level as well. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. A remarkable, it's just it's just so unfortunate we don't have more information, you know, about the motivations, you know, everything uh, for, for serving in, in such an incredible story as that. But yeah, remarkable. And undoubtedly there were more, but you know, there was... There, there were there were Irish women everywhere 
that there were troops. And again, it would have been the case that most of them were in and around Virginia. And you, you get a lot of them moving through the lines as well. So, like, I have a lot of women who would get notifications. These are poor women getting notifications in New York saying, you know, your husband is here on his deathbed. Come quick. And they're heading off, trying mm. to get through the military lines. Like, they have virtually no money, desperately. Get, I have one woman, and she arrives the morning after her husband dies the previous night, like she's too late. But, you know, the efforts that these women had to go through. And the consequences for someone who died, like, it's, it's, it can be breathtaking to, to read that what happens to some people. Like, you know, consigned to workhouses, they go into poor houses. Their, their lives are both emotionally and economically devastated by the amount of death that's coming the way of people who, who don't have the financial capacity to absorb the consequences of it. I suppose you've come across most of that in your work on the pension files. Yeah, so I mean, that's the main base of my work. So nearly, uh, they're all widows and dependents, so they're nearly all women who are married to Civil War um, soldiers or who were, were dependent on them, so mothers. There's a few fathers in there as well. Um, but you see, the ones I work on, there's a unifying factor in nearly all of them in that because because of what they are, the person who was serving died. <laughs> so they, they were killed or died. So you're, it's the worst case scenario. But the reason I work on those files is because the amount of information that people have to put into them is colossal. They're given affidavits that tell you their entire life. And they're often then trying to, because they need to prove the relationship, often given in original letters that they receive from the soldiers. So that's why they're, 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 they're so, so amazing. But like, yeah. I was writing a story of, of just recently about the economic aspects of it. But, uh, you know, the women, uh, I have a woman over in Chicago whose husband went off to the front. He was in Virginia, but he wasn't getting paid on time. And so she couldn't afford to pay the rent. She was pregnant, couldn't afford to pay the rent. She had to move into smaller premises in Chicago. Only was saved in those premises because an aunt managed to give her the money gives birth to a set of twins, daughters, and has been so enfeebled because of an inability to get food or nourishment and because of the conditions she's living in, she dies almost immediately afterward. And this this guy in Virginia is notified of that when he's off at the front. Like, that's that's the reality. It's all very well if you came from a, you know, a a decent-sized farm or a middle-class background to go off and talk about what you were going doing. That was the reality for a lot of people. You know, there's uh, dependent fathers. The the son is sending back money, paying the rent. Um, this is in Providence, in Rhode Island. I was just writing about him as well recently. Sending the money back, rent. He's paying the grocery bills for his father. He's paying the rent for his father. He gets killed, Gettysburg, and the father is into an almshouse. You know, and so that's like the consequences are just. There's no messing around with the the impact of this war on these people. And when you look at the consequences, like. I always talk about it. This It's one of the major problems I have with the fact that we, we forget them completely. A lot of these people had already experienced a famine. And, and so this is a second, I call it the second great trauma of their lives. These people are remitting massive amounts of money back to Ireland. A lot of soldiers are doing it directly. That are, are It's very important in preserving people's livelihoods here. And we're just not giving them any recognition. And there's no recognition of, of kind of that type of level of suffering that that went on as a result of the civil war either when you think about like the actual bare bones of it and their day-to-day life and what's affected by just what we would figure is just another casualty on a battlefield somewhere their lives are just irrevocably changed moving on 
given, and you kind of touched on it there, like given the sheer size or the sheer number of Irish in the American Civil War and our involvement, you know, why do you think it is that there's so little known about it? Yeah, again, I've written an awful lot about this. I think it's very interesting to consider this alongside the narrative, for example, that the First World War was forgotten. Like, if we were to look at battles and stuff that we think is forgotten, I think we we have a pretty long list of stuff. I think people have sometimes confused, and like, I do a lot of First World War work myself. Um, there's been a mass rise of interest in the First World War, which is great to see, and it's deserving. Um, an awful lot of it, though, is tied to genealogy, right? And I think that's really a big crux of it. This is kind of element one, part one of the answer. Right, so if you look at the way we've engaged with the First World War since 2014, a lot of it is people going, oh, my grandfather was over on the Western Front or whatever it was mm-hmm. and exploring that story. And because of the scale, because it is such an, a massive event, an awful lot of people have, have relatives who fought in the war. And so there's been a big exploration of that. The people who emigrate, I always make this point, there's 49 years between these two wars, right? So it's not exactly a huge amount of time. Mm-hmm. The last... American Civil War veteran that I have, who was born in Ireland, died in 1950, right? There are three grandchildren, not great-grandchildren, three grandchildren that I've identified in the Republic of Ireland of American Civil War veterans alive today. It's not that long ago, really, in in terms of genealogy. What happens is, is that most of these people never come back. And so there isn't the genealogical connection. So let's say when the 150th of the Civil War came around in 2014, People weren't looking back and saying, oh, my great-grandfather fought in the American Civil War here. They were doing that in America. So the genealogy has a huge part to play in it. There are other elements. Ireland does not do diaspora history. We like to think we do it. We do not do it. I did an analysis for a different talk recently of, like, saving in our universities, our third level, about how many people would be dedicated to looking. In, in history departments specifically, I did this. So there are historians who aren't working in history departments, for example. But we don't do diaspora history to any great degree, considering you know 40% of the people who were born in Ireland in 1890 are living outside of Ireland. We don't do it to the level that we should do it. There's not a single scholar who would specialise in the Irish and the American Civil War employed by any third-level institution on the island of Ireland. Right? So this is a conflict that's the same scale. I'm not saying there should be the same number of people looking at it as the First World War, but we don't have a single... Um, scholar who who that's what they do or it's their area or so right and so most of the even uh, even looking generally at America you know I mean there's a, there have been an awful lot and there is plenty of scholars doing work on the diaspora I would argue that it's not nearly enough given the scale of its importance to us and so our fo- our history focus has always been largely political in Ireland we do a lot yeah. of political history and it's 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 hugely focused on the revolutionary period for obvious reasons right so there's so there's all those things. There's another element to it, I think, though, and that's state-driven. So I and a number of other people have, for more than a decade, been banging on the door to try and see some kind of state-level recognition, right? So, like, one speech ever given by an Irish minister in the United States has mentioned the Irish and the American Civil War, and that took mass lobbying to even get it mentioned in the speech in Louisiana. Heather Humphreys did it a few years ago. Every other effort to see the state do something has fallen largely on deaf ears. We had campaigns 
to see some sort of stamp as a recognition. Myself and a number of other academics tried to get, see would the commemorations committee be interested in giving a few hundred quid towards a conference. Nothing happened. The Department of Foreign Affairs did do a, a, a special lecture on it. There was a small Irish Army detachment sent over for the Fredericksburg 150th anniversary. But by and large, virtually nothing. So like the president, who I've great time for this isn't a, a mm. condemnation of him but for example he, he gave a lecture in fan Meal hall in boston back i think it was in oh, was it 2011 or 2012 and he was talking about the famine and everything there wasn't a single reference to the number of famine immigrants who ended up in the military in boston who went and fought and died in the civil war and the thing that really annoyed me about that is that the 9th massachusetts infantry 150 years prior to that speech had actually been stationed in the hall where he was talking before they went out and I mean, that's not his fault. That's yeah. a speechwriter thing. But it's this strange, I launched a campaign to try and get the Irish Brigade flag that's in Dáil Éireann out for a few weeks so that Irish public could have open access to see it. Didn't happen. Now, I believe that there's been, there's some issue in relation to that feeling that the civil war is, a civil war is seen as some sort of, you know, something that we shouldn't touch because it's too divisive a, a, an event to be looking at. But when you're talking about all these famine immigrants, but our T-shirt gets into the room every single year with the President of the United States because of 19th and early 20th century immigrants and these quarter of a million people. Yet we haven't found this. We haven't found the time. There's never been a major academic conference in Ireland that looks at Irish participation in the American Civil War. There's rarely any major television productions or anything like that about it. It's, it's just breathtaking how much it's been left behind. And I think you could argue that about a lot of diaspora history. You really could. But it, it just seems strange to me, given our relationship with the United States and our desire to always have a good relationship with them, that we don't do it. Because we took a very different... Like, we got a response from the Department of Foreign Affairs when we were looking for stuff, and, and the Department of... The minister then told us that they felt it was up to the United States to lead the way in, in terms of the memory of it. But, of course, that is not the viewpoint that the state mm. took when it came to the Irish who served in the British military in the First World War. We didn't say, we're going to leave that to the British government. And, of course, we shouldn't have done that. We had to. But but there is a very different way. So I wrote about it recently. I think it's interesting to think about what we choose to forget and everything. Because, like, I mean, there's no question the American Civil War has been forgotten to a degree that the First World War never was. So if we want to talk about how the First World War was forgotten. It starts you thinking about how you know, we operate in, in this type of space. So there's a whole load of different elements that come into it, but it's good to see things like, you know, Epic at the Emigration Museum. There's a lot more being done on things, for example, like both diaspora women and stuff at the moment. So there yeah. is kind of like a growth. I just have become a bit deflated after a decade of consistent lobbying to see a bit more done for this kind of scale of stuff, uh, largely to no avail, with, with some notable exceptions. It's hard to keep on fighting the good fight. Once again, just yeah. knock down and knock down. Yeah. Well, I, I often, and I say it in most of the talks I give, we pay a price for it. We've paid a historical price. In terms of the files I work on, there's 1.26 million of these pension files sitting in the National Archives in Washington, D.C. There is no record of ordinary Irish people of social their, their social existence in the 19th century. No record anywhere on the planet, including Ireland, that comes within a million miles of being what they are for, for teaching us about Irish people and their lives and 
in Ireland and in America and emigration and everything. And no Irish historian ever looked at them because we don't do enough looking at American Civil War history. They would have been identified many, many years ago as a, as a major resource for general Irish 19th century social history if we'd, we'd done that. And so this is the kind of price you pay for not looking at stuff in global context and looking at the diaspora in a way that, that I think we, we need to start doing. Such a treasure trove of information that just needs to be mined and it's just been left. I was going to ask you the question then, do you think history is in a good place in Ireland? But I suppose you've kind of already answered that. Well, no, I think it is. I think, I think it's a complicated answer. I think if, if it depends, it depends the historian of what period you ask. Like, true, true. I think there's incredible stuff being done in the revolutionary period, like brilliant stuff. I, I'm kind of a, particularly with my archaeology hat on, I worked through an awful lot of different periods, um, which is quite enjoyable to do. But some, some of the, like, so, but if you look at archaeology of the War of Independence, it's a disaster. Like, we don't protect any of those sites. But from a historical perspective, the, the work that's been done in recent years on that kind of decade, stuff like the First World War that's been done, and stuff like the War of Independence and everything is incredible. Like, it's a, just an amazing moment for that history. There's the wider problems about history in schools and everything like that. There's a terrible funding problem we have in Ireland for things like history and heritage. Like, we just won't fund it. We'll create interpretive centres around mm. sites of archaeological and historical merit, and we won't employ anybody who knows. Um, yeah, there's no budget to employ people properly. or So there's mass problems with that. And we're worse than an awful lot of places. I often think we need to be looking at, you know, if we look at the disparity between the way places like Scotland fund a lot of this versus how we do, it's pretty bleak stuff. But from a historical perspective, there's an awful lot of work being done. I, I think, you know, I think there's wins and, and losses. So the decade of centenaries particularly has been an incredible boon if you work on that period and if you're interested in it. I think even though a lot of the fundings would, would never have been available otherwise, I think you could say that perhaps, you know, there's there's maybe been um, that other periods may have suffered as a result of that, particularly from a public consumption thing because people can't get enough of that period. But, uh, you know, there's only so many... TV documentaries or radio documentaries that are going to be made, and nearly all of them are going to be focusing on that period for understandable reasons. So I think there's an awful lot of areas that we could be spending a bit more time focusing on. So, so like my corner that I tend to fight from a historical perspective is diaspora and immigration. Yeah, so it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. I mean, there, there has it has to be said there are some really fantastic historians working yeah. in the field all now, and increasingly. Uh, material is being made more consumable for the public in in ways that you know weren't the case previously, and it's something that you would hope is going to continue on some sort of level beyond the twenty twenty three cut off. Yeah, I definitely think you're right. If you are a historian in the revolutionary period, now is your heyday. But right. like you said, everybody else has taken a hit for that. Do you think that historians or academics should use social media to get their work out? And do you think that there's a big drive or a need for that to get it out to, for public consumption so to drive a, an interest that will you know, help the wheels of motion, I suppose, to, to get more funding and, and better commemorative services for other conflicts or other historical events? Yeah, well, I mean, you're pushing that an open door with me on that because I've always, <laughs> I've always been a big advocate for public history and stuff. And, and in, I, think I think historians are doing that, by and large. An awful, awful lot of them are um, on social media and doing fantastic public-facing work. 
I actually think Ireland is pretty good for that, actually, in comparison to some other places even. But there's a lot of really good work and material that's been made freely available to stuff. I, I mean, I think more generally, just as from an academic thing, I think there, and it is a long, long, slow process. But there has to be more... It's very difficult if you're an academic, like public outreach and social media and stuff. None of that counts towards your, your tenure or your position. It's all still reliant on things like these kind of double referee journals that are vital for mm-hmm. the advancement of the profession, but tend to be, they're, they're not accessible to most of the public. And, and so a lot of, it's a necessity if you want to have a career in academia is, is driven by, by stuff that still isn't outward facing enough, I think. So, so that has its own set of issues. But I mean, I think there's been some really good projects around the, the particularly the revolutionary stuff, the First World War stuff that have all been public facing. And of course, the contributions to things like the programming, to things like exhibitions and stuff are all major events. The amount of public talks that go on every day, nearly, I, I think a lot of recognition has to be given for that. But I do think, you know, like I'd be a big advocate, obviously, having been a blogger for 10 years, like... I would like to see more recognition for that, but I am going to say that to everything I'm saying. But, you know, I, I think there could be more engagement across and outside with historians. I, I spent most of my career not in academia. Um, I think you could argue that because of the terrible state of employment and everything that's in third level now, you have to be so focused on just what you're doing in your track that there could be there's more room for collaboration with say independent historians and stuff that then is currently the case but uh, things are improving all the time and i mean there's a really rich i mean if you're on twitter which can be increasingly a bit of a cesspool but uh, i mean there's 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 fantastic stuff on twitter um, and interactions consistently between say accounts like yours and like academic historians and stuff all the time really vibrant and that goes in for archaeology as well. So I think I think by and large, like given the circumstances, there's a very good job being done on it. Until there's a fundamental change in things like tenure and everything being linked to more outwardly facing kind of, if you like, softer stuff. And I imagine that will come eventually. It'll, it'll have to. But yeah, so. It'll probably take some time. Okay, so Damien. Thank you so much. It was an amazing conversation, amazing interview. Thank you so much for taking up, you know, two and a half hours of your day. Where can everybody find you? Yeah, cheers. No, we really enjoyed it. Thanks for thanks for asking me on. Um, yeah, well, I suppose the main um, area, if you want, is is the website. So you can go to www.irishamericancivilwar.com. There's ten years worth of articles and resources and stuff on that. For anybody interested in books or anything, I have a couple of books on the Irish and the American Civil War, so you, you can find them on Amazon or wherever, your local bookshop, you can order them if you want. So the Irish and the American Civil War is the first one. And then the, the second book, which specifically looks at family stories relating to the pension piles, is called The, the, the Forgotten Irish, Irish Emigrant Experiences in America. So they're, they're kind of the main areas. And oh yeah, if you want to, I'm on Twitter at Irish ACW, seeing as we're talking about social media. And you have your podcast as well. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. The, the Forgotten Irish podcast, too. I have too many things on the go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember them all. Yeah. Brilliant. So, check that out. that's amazing. Thank no you problem. so much. No problem. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, there you have it, folks. The Irish in the American Civil War with Damien Shields. I had a great time interviewing Damien, and I really hope that you enjoyed that interview. If you have any questions or want to probe a little bit further, 
You can find both myself and Damien Shields. I'm at The Irish at War and Damien is at The Irish ACW on Twitter. In the next episode, I'll be talking with Jim O'Neill about the Nine Years' War. The Nine Years' War is a fascinating yet misunderstood conflict that is pivotal to Irish history. So please, tune into that. As always, my podcasts will be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Acast, and most other places where you get your podcasts. Once again, you'll be able to become a supporter and Patreon of this podcast for as little as €3. Euro. I'll post a link to Patreon on my Twitter page. Or if you Google the Irish at War Patreon, you should be able to find us there too. And so, once again, I hope you're all staying safe, staying healthy, staying isolated. And until next time, good luck.